Ian Trottier here. Uh, Discussions of Truth, Clay Clark's reawakening tour in San Antonio. I have with me uh, Reverend Bill Cook. Bill Cook. Bill or, or William Cook. Whichever, or William. Whichever you prefer. Uh, William, uh, make an introduction here for yourself. Uh, who are you? What do you do? I am the founder of the Black Robe Regiment of Virginia. But I'm also, right now, I'm leading an organization called America's Black Robe Regiment, which is uh, an umbrella uh, term for the formation of the of companies of pastors in, in every political jurisdiction in the country. That's what we're endeavoring to do. What, uh, what is Black Robe? What does that mean? What is that? Well, Black Robe Regiment is a reference to the, to the clergy of the American founding era because... The British really blamed uh, the clergy for the rebellion of the colonies against British rule. And it was because the clergy had preached the political principles in the founding charters. They had preached those political ideas for decades before the conflict with Great Britain started. And uh, they were, they were, they were, in fact, in my opinion, they were so instrumental in instilling that ideology in the American people at the time that... Um, I would say that they were the founding fathers. The, the, the men who framed the country in the, in the founding charters, I call them the framers, but the real founders were the clergy because they laid the theological and the, and the, the ideological foundation of our government. And you're saying these are men that are identified with black robes? Well, yeah. T- typically, the clergy of that era, they wore, they wore black Cambridge robes when they preached, full-length full black gowns. And so the, it was a sort of a derisive reference the British used. It was a slam on the clergy because they wore black robes. It was a reference to their black robes. I believe this is kind of—it's returning to me, Bill. Uh, you and I had, I think, exchanged a few moments mm-hmm. uh, yesterday, and, right. and and I think where 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 the the, the the words that we exchanged had caught my attention was that you were—I believe it was you. Because I had two interactions with two different people that brought this to my attention about the black ribs, which I had not known about. It was either you or the individual prior to you. And, and again, both instances were very brief. It's gaining, it's gaining uh, momentum. I mean, it's becoming more well-known because a lot of people are talking about it. I'm talking about it. A lot of Brian Gibson's been talking about it as, as a minister. He's talking about it. We just, we just talked. Um, and others that have come to this event who are speaking at this event have talked about it. It's become, it's, it's become sort of a, a, a phrase that identified with, with pastors uh, engaging, beginning to engage and really stand up for their country, for liberty, for, their, for, for right and against wrong and against tyranny, that kind of thing. Were you saying, Bill, that these men in the black robes that were clergy were also politicians? Well... They actually trained the people we think of as politicians in that era. It was their it was their preaching that actually educated the people and the fa- and the men we call the founding fathers. They educated legislators about proper forms of government. They were incredible men, and you know we we don't have a lot of people in our pulpits today like these these men. These were these were men with incredible gravitas and knowledge, incredible knowledge. They were extremely learned. You know, these these are men that studied philosophers like John Locke and uh, and uh, others. Um, they they could 
you know, Jonas Clark, who was the pastor of the Church of Christ in Lexington for a number of years, he could stand toe-to-toe with any of the founding fathers to discuss principles of government. And I would say Clark probably mentored some of the men we call the founding fathers. Jonas Clark was, you know, he, he was um, very involved in the, in the lead-up to the Battle of Lexington. It was his, it was, he had helped to train the militia, his congregation, 75 members of the of the Minutemen were members of, of Jonas Clark's church. And, um, black robes? Well, yeah, well, Clark, he, I mean, Jonas Clark wouldn't have thought of himself as a black robe. He probably preached in one, but because uh, the concept, it was something that, that we, today we use it as a term of, we take it as an honorific term. But in that era, it was a, it was an insult to the clergy. It was a belittling of their of their black of their who they were and their black robes. And so um, when when Paul Revere rode into Lexington on April 18, 1775, he stopped in the home at the home of at the parsonage of Jonas Clark at about midnight because Clark was known to have, have provided uh, housing for some of the founding fathers that, that would stop and stay at his place when he, they couldn't find safe, safe haven in Boston. And, then, and that night there were two of them in his home, Sam Adams and John Hancock were both there. And when Revere notified them that the British were on their way to Lexington by land and that they had orders to arrest both of those men and to seize the weapons, stores, and powder of the citizens of Lexington, either it was either Hancock or, or Samuel Adams that turned to, to Pastor Jonas Clark and said, Sir, will your people fight? And Clark responded, I have prepared them for this very hour. And he had. He had helped train the militia. And uh, when, when the militia began to assemble on Lexington Green, which was effectively the lawn of Clark's church, Clark went out. At, they, they started uh, assembling, marshalling on Lexington Green at about, at about uh, 1 a.m. Clark went out at 2 a.m. I assume he went out to greet them and pray for them. And uh, the next day, he watched the entire scene unfold for his, from his parts in the door. He saw eight men, eight men from his church fall dead on Lexington Green. And then and 10 were wounded. And, um, you know, he paid a heavy price for his for his for standing for liberty. You know, it was it was it was sacred. I mean, it was so sacred that it was worth giving your life for. And um, Clark was not alone in that. There were many clergy of that era that were like him that that felt that liberty was so sacred that that it would be a crime to allow it to be destroyed in any way. So um, when Clark, you know, the following Sunday after that, after that skirmish, there were, he, there were eight caskets of men that he knew that were one, piled one on top of the other in the, in the center of the church. Um, he had to preach their funerals. And a year later, by, by some accounts, Clark preached the anniversary sermon of that day, and he said, from this date shall redound the liberty of the world. You know, he understood what was happening and what was at stake. And um, today, I think we have a situation where pastors today do not understand what's at stake, what we are losing, and what's being taken, what, what, what our enemies are trying to take from us. These guys were ready to lay down their lives. After the Battle of Lexington, the, 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 the fighting progressed to Concord, and it was... It was uh, pastors in that region who actually called out the men of their churches. They called, they, they, 
they sounded the trumpet, so to speak, and they called the men of their churches to fall out and fight the British, and they did. And the pastors participated in fighting the British, and they, um, on, on the way back to Boston, the road back to Boston, which today is called Battle Road, uh, was lined by, by colonists shooting from every conceivable direction at these British troops going back. The British ended up losing over 320 men that day. The Americans suffered about 90-plus casualties, and that was the beginning of the American Revolution. And it was, it was universally felt what, what the British had done in Lexington was an act of murder against the Americans. And so um, after, after that, the word started spreading through the colonies, uh, you know, through the frontier churches along the Appalachian and pastors, uh, you know, not maybe not exactly this way, but one pastor in New Jersey, uh, Joab Houghton, he called his whole congregation together and he said, brethren, the British are murdering our brethren of New England. Who goes with me to Boston? And he shouldered his musket and he let every single man in his church off to fight the British. And that was that was a um, theme that was that was repeated throughout the northern colonies where pastors said this is not going to happen they stood for liberty and they fought for it and they they as as one one man put it they they felt that liberty was def- needed to be defended at very hazard to your life and uh they they didn't just preach hey you know you need to care about what happens in your government they they got involved and they were the inspiration behind it so you cannot you can understand why the british hated the american clergy and treated them with incredible, horrible animus when they caught them uh, during the war. But there are there are numerous, I mean, numerous stories of pastors who fought so so courageously and so boldly during the American Revolution. I mean, they many of them shouldered their muskets and went to war. And Jonas Clark is one of the most one of the greatest examples of what happened during that time. This is a fight for religious freedom. That's the ultimately it is. Ultimately, it's uh, it is a battle for religious freedom because everything eminent, everything flows from that. Every every liberty we have flows from religious freedom. And today, it's there's a, there's a clear attempt to destroy religious freedom. They the this whole COVID masquerade is an effort to eviscerate freedom, is to, to enslave the American people, to make us into automatons. And um, it's a time, just like it was for Jonas Clark, it's a time to fight. We have to fight for liberty. It's worth more than our lives, really. And, and so we're, that's the message we're carrying in today's Black Robe Regiment. It's no different. It's no different than what, it's the, the, what is at peril is everything. We're facing the loss of everything in this country. So, I mean, I could tell you some amazing stories. Peter Muhlenberg was another... I don't know if you've heard... Have you heard the story of Peter Muhlenberg? No. Peter Muhlenberg was of German stock. He, so his father, Henry Melchior, founded the Lutheran Church in America. Peter um, was a bit of a rebel as a young man, but he kind of matured and he became a clergyman. But he was also involved in the Virginia House of Burgesses. He was a he was a legislator in Virginia, and he was present the day that Patrick Henry. It was I think March 23rd, 1775, when Patrick Henry gave his Liberty or Death speech. And when Henry, and mo- where was that? That was in uh, Richmond, Christ Church in Richmond, in Richmond. And when 
At the end of his speech, Henry motioned that Virginia counties be put into a state of defense, which would have insinuated standing up militia in those counties. And it was the pastor in the room who seconded Henry's motion that the counties be put into a state of defense. And while Muhlenberg was in in Virginia, or in Richmond, George Washington asked him if he would accept a commission in the Continental Army as a colonel. Muhlenberg came back to Woodstock, which is where some of his churches were. The one was in, uh, it was called uh, Emmanuel Church in Woodstock. And the word had, the word had really gotten out throughout the colonies that, that, that I mean, not through the colonies, but through the, the Appalachian frontier, that Muhlenberg was going to preach his farewell sermon on January 21, 1776. So Muhlenberg entered the pulpit that day, and he was... Um, he preached out of the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. He preached through eight verses, which begins with, to everything there is a season, a time to every purpose under heaven, a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to pluck up that which is planted, and so forth. When he got to the eighth verse, which stated, there's a time for war and a time for peace, he, he, so many people had come that they were, they were standing out in the church cemetery outside the little log church to hear him. And in a voice that thundered, he said, in the language of Holy Writ, there is a time for all things, a time to pray and a time to fight. That time has now come. Now, that's pretty dramatic. That, I mean, that's a dramatic thing to say in any pulpit. But then he came down from the pulpit, and he said the benediction. He removed his robe, his black robe. He was in full uniform as a colonel under his robe. He had his sword by his side, his saber, by his side. By some accounts, he had his musket flintlock pistols with him in the pulpit. And then he ordered drums to begin beating for recruits at the rear of the church. And when the when all was said and done over that, that, that day and the next several, he had ended up recruiting 300 men from the frontier to form the 8th Virginia Regiment. And he led them very capably throughout the war. He, he was eventually promoted to Brigadier General, one of Washington's most capable and at the end of the war, he was breveted to Major General. And interestingly enough, when his he he was at, by the end of the war, we had won we had won independence, and you know he was a great hero. And his flock really begged him to come back and be their pastor. Who wouldn't want a guy like that to be their pastor? But he said, "I can't build the house of God any, long, any longer. I'm a bloody man," because he had shed blood in the revolution. So he ran for Congress. He became a he was elected to the first Congress. He became a three-term congressman and a one-term senator. His brother, his brother uh, Philip Augustus uh, Muhlenberg, who initially opposed Peter, Peter's uh, uh, going to war, becoming a military leader, he, he said you, his brother criticized him pretty intensely, said you shouldn't leave the pulpit for the battlefield. They, they got into this debate in letters because they didn't have the Internet back then. And uh, they argued back and forth. Around the end of the war, his, I'm sorry, it was Friedrich Muhlenberg came around kind of Peter's way of thinking. Friedrich ran for Congress and became the first Speaker of the House. Two brothers who, who became uh, congressmen from Pennsylvania. That's two clergymen in the first Congress. And you can imagine the first Congress conceiving of something like separation of church and state never would have happened. It was nowhere in the founders' thinking because the founders knew. The men who, who crafted our founding charters would have known 
very, very well the role that clergy played in the American Revolution. There's no chance that they, that they would have come up with the idea of, of separation as it has been construed in our, in our, by, by our government today in the Johnson Amendment. So, um, and there were other, I believe there were other clergymen in the first Congress, a number of them. So they, they obviously didn't see any, um, they didn't have any hesitation to get involved in government. So today we're calling clergy, not necessarily to run for office, but to get involved, to begin to assert their influence in local government, to begin to call up leaders who are imposing tyranny, who are, are trying to implement Marxist, uh, Marxist ideology within our local schools and, and state schools or whatever they are, you know. Um, call, they have to be called out. They have to be confronted and they have to be opposed, especially by holy men who have authority that's, that are holding up the standards of God before them and saying, no, you can't do that. God's word forbids what you're saying. Transgenderism, are you kidding me? They would have been they would have been probably carried out and hung the moment they did that at that time because the founding fathers understood that homosexuality would eventually lead to what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah and i have co- i have actually have i own copies of sermons that were preached at the execution of people that were caught in the act of sodomy for a number of years sodomy whatever it would have been and and the idea of of um, critical race theory would have been so abhorrent to them and it would have never seen the light of day. But it's because we have not been eternally vigilant as, as a people that we're facing these things today. And the pastors, pastors have lost a sense of um, responsibility for what happens in government. Is there, is there a common, <coughs> Bill, is there, is there a condom, common enemy <coughs> that the country faces today that was faced in uh, 1776? Well, I think that that common enemy is a globalist, is, a, is, a, is the worship of a globalism. You know, this idea that we can all become, we can become one world, one government, and, and all be one. This, I don't know what drives that. You know, I think there's something in sinful human nature that needs to, you know, always needs to um, strive for something that, uh, but it's it's just perverse. It's 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 really um, it's just tyranny. Tyranny, you know, the flesh wars against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. Tyranny wars against liberty, and um, I, you know, I I don't think I'll I don't know if I'll ever understand evil, but it's e- whatever it is, it's evil. It's pure, unadulterated evil that we're dealing with today. It's not just people that are misguided and want to do good. It's that they're really wanting to do evil. And I don't understand that. Because there's going to be a reckoning for all of this at some point in, in uh, God's economy. And I, I just... It's hard to understand. But, it, but it's, the same, it's the same spirit. I mean, the, the, the difference here is that... that the clergy of the seventh of the eighteenth century understood. They, they, it wasn't just that taxation without representation or one little stamp act or act or something else, but they understood that a principle was being violated. And if that principle was violated, they understood that it would eventually lead to absolute despotism. And so they didn't want to open it. They didn't want to have open the slightest crack to to some of the things that the British were trying to implement. 
was <clears throat> what was the it, 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 what could what could be uh, a, a is there is is there an organization is there is there a group is there a group of people governing uh, this type of implemented global as you say uh, takeover I think I think well I would say yes in Washington DC right now there's a globalist cabal I don't know you know who you know, we, we can, all of us can look at Joe Biden and realize that Joe Biden is not there. That someone else is pulling the strings and calling the shots, and it's not Joe Biden. The deep state? Yeah, the deep state. What is this nebulous thing? Who knows who it is? George Soros. But it's evil. And it is a, we're, we're, our government has been stolen from us. It's been taken from us. And, um... We need to fight to get it back. Because if we don't, it's going to be our children that pay the full price for it. So, if we, as we, as we look at the, as we look at the struggles that these uh, men in black robes and these pastors and these these early settlers uh, that that spawned the creation of this nation, this was a religious theme. This was a this was a religious theme. We're, can we tie that? Can we tie that in? today to possibly I think there's a religious component to this I know that there are, there's the whole Satanist movement in our country there's the new world there's the, there's um, new ageism that's you know masquerades by any number of names but it's it's a it's a, it's an idolatry that that seeks to implement a global order a new world order that's um, you know I don't know what they're worshiping, but I think I know who's at the at the head of it, and that's going to be the devil. You know, um, I mean, you've probably had some guests on your show that have talked about some of this that may, that may have more specifics, but I just see it as I see what I'm seeing is pure evil, unadulterated evil. I mean, the things that are being done, evil is becoming very classy in the way that it presents itself today, very professional. And um, it's it's just wrong. It's evil. It's, I mean, everything to do with this whole COVID deal. There's something bigger than COVID that's 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 being pushed here. And it's it's. I feel like I feel I feel like I'm living in an agenda. You know, someone else's agenda. But um, I don't know if I'm helping. I'm answering your question or not. But. Um, I just I sense that the veil between evil and where we are right now is very thin. We are we are grappling with very real darkness. We've got we've got a constitution. We've got these freedoms. We've got freedom of speech. I, I look at it very basically. I haven't read the constitution completely. I've looked at bits of it. Uh, I, I know generally what the rights that it that it gives. Uh, and those, I break them down to the three more important, most important rights I'm able to identify are freedom of religion, most importantly, uh, freedom of speech, and, and freedom of press. Mm-hmm. And all three of those are being attacked. Mm-hmm. All three of those are under attack uh, at an unprecedented way in Australia mm-hmm. and Canada. No doubt about it. And right now, the people like you and I are the greatest threat to whatever mechanism is implementing 
this global attempt, this global reach to att- attempt to attempt to, to to unify, in my view, the globe under their power. Mm-hmm. And so then I have to say, well, who is the they? That's what I ask myself. I ask, I say, I say, who, Bill, who, who is the day? Who, who is the day? And if I look, if I look at these men in the early years of 1776, they're fighting. Same spirit. It's the same, it's the same thing. But they were able to identify so much as saying, well, look, this is what's different from the land that we left. England, mm-hmm. right? We're speaking a language. This is the land that we left, and what they were able to do uh, was it Henry VIII? <coughs> yep. Left this monopolistic control, right, over people's belief system, right. And if you did not conform, you were disposed of, essentially, right? So, right. So they were able to say, okay, well, you know, we're going to cut it off. We're going to create our own religion. Mm -hmm. But this is where they got it wrong according to what we have inherited. They did. They did have their own. British did have their own religion. They they wanted to impose on the colonies. Church of England. Right. And 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 so that group that left... The pilgrims. Right. The pilgrims said, well, hey... We have a belief in God, and so can you, and we can live cohesively, and we can live peacefully, because we each respect each other's right. differences. Right. So we won't let that interfere with our governance. Right. Are we dealing with the same thing today, where is, is it possible... Uh, what, is, what is the... I think it's, it's just a... Postmodern incarnation of the same evil. It's the, it's the desire of other men to lo- men to lord it over other men. And is that how is that being done? That's being done. Uh, we can we can look at we can look at, for instance, the Federal Reserve, Central yeah, Bank. We say in, economically, in, it's really being done in almost an innumerable number of ways. But they're seeking total control. So there's. I mean, an, over our bodies. Yes, everything. Now it's in now fact, it's our bodies. In fact, over our bodies, our minds. <clears throat> tyranny over the mind who said um, that I'm trying to think of the quote about um, there's a great something about tyranny over the mind of man I'm, I'm trying to remember who, who said it but when you think about tyranny um, you have to go all the way back to the Garden of Eden the the even at the beginning, when the when everything was perfect, God had formed a perfect world. Somehow, tyranny managed to uh, insinuate itself into the, into that picture, the Garden of Eden, in the form of a serpent. And uh, you know, all he what he did, what the serpent did, was he he um, asserted falsehood into the picture of cre- into everything in creation. So. You know, it's 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 not. I used to think, do all tyrants? I used to ask myself, do all tyrants lie? Yes. Why do tyrants lie? Why do they have to lie to get what they want? Because it's because they're weak. They are not inherently strong. They don't they don't come to you with an unopposable power. They just come to you with a little lie. 
And one little lie sunk the entire human race. In fact, it reduced all of mankind under absolute despotism. And it wasn't until Jesus came back and died on the cross and rose again that tyranny was put down. Hence, Jesus said, all authority is given to me in heaven and on earth to his disciples when he commissioned them. And so, um, I remember... I remember a, a, an itinerant preacher who used to say that we are swimming in a sea of lies, and we are. We're living in a sea of lies. In the book of Revolution, it ta- um, Revolution, Revela- Revelation talks about uh, the serpent opening his mouth and, and pouring out a river, like a, a, almost an ocean of lies that swept, sweeps men away. And that's where we are today. The lies are... in with the media and other organizations it's there it's it's they are pervasive it's everywhere we are swimming in an ocean of lies in america and the truth becomes the the truth of jesus christ the truth of the gospel the truth any truth really for that matter becomes the greatest threat to to this uh to this effort to to destroy liberty we the truth the the true church is the greatest threat to liberty that exists I mean, to tyranny that exists. And so it's why we have to keep trumpeting the truth no matter where we go, where we are, what we're doing. We have to fearlessly proclaim the whole counsel of God. And um, I mean, I think it's, it's really the only way we're going to regain our, regain our liberty, regain our, uh, our uh, you know, authority over our own lives. Does, 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 does America survive? Um, does, does that liberty restores well i'd say if you were looking if you were looking at this situation that we're in right now i think you'd have to say it's impossible for us to get through this i mean the odds seem so stacked against us right now that it seems impossible but what i'll tell you what i'm about to say is the kind of thing that will will uh will will drive the people that are trying to to implement liberty will drive them crazy because the truth is, no matter how far far gone we seem, we all there is always a ray of hope that that this thing can be turned around. Several years ago, when I was uh, when I this, when I was still doing the Black Robe Regiment, I founded the Virgi- the Black Robe Regiment of Virginia in 2012. The um, I was I was pretty discouraged because there aren't a lot of people that you know at that point that were willing to give money to support an effort that wasn't tax deductible. And I wasn't. I refused the Johnson Amendment because I knew it was an effort to silence the pulpit of America. It's the most destructive piece of legislation ever fashioned. And um, because it did manipulate the silence of the pulpit in America. And so um, as I'm sitting at home, I, I told the Lord one morning about two years ago, Lord, I quit. I'm not doing this anymore. Now, I know that pastors are the answer to what ails America. I know that pastors are the key to turning this thing around. I said, I'm not doing it anymore. Besides, you know, I'm just arrogant thinking that somehow I could have an, I can have a role in saving an entire country. Of, you know, what, what kind of arrogance is that? And, um, and I also was thinking, you know, we are so, we're, we're so overwhelmed by evil. We're so overrun by hordes of people trying to destroy this country that I don't see how we can get it back. And in that moment, the Holy Spirit spoke to my heart. He spoke Hebrews chapter 11, where, where the writer said, about the men of faith that he went through a through a uh, a rehearsal of the numbers of men of faith that had done great had accomplished great things for God, and he said they subdued kingdoms. 
They wrought righteousness. They stopped the mouths of lions. They quenched the violence of fire. Out of weakness were made strong. They put, they put foreign armies to flight. And I started thinking about some of the stories in the Old Testament where the servants of God were, were, were vastly outnumbered, outgunned, and out, out you know, they didn't, they didn't, in the natural, they didn't possess the capabilities they needed to, to defeat these enemies that had come against Israel. And yet they did. We think about Gideon. He only had 300 men, and yet he routed an entire army, and, and, and whole, whole armies were destroyed by God through men of faith. And so what I realized was America's never, it's not impossible for God to save this country. God can save this country if, we, if, if there are people that will stand up and really believe him and be, be men of courage and faith like Gideon. You know, think, one of the things I've been teaching is there's, you know, this is a bit of a theological stretch, but it's that the canon of Scripture, you know, a lot of people will tell you the canon of Scripture is closed, there's no more new Scripture, you know, whatever. And I say, no, it's not closed. The 11th chapter of Hebrews is still open because there are still people's names to be added to that great hall of faith that subdued kingdoms and wrought righteousness and, and stopped the mouths of lions and put foreign armies to flight. And, and in the, in the uh, 12th chapter, the writer says, Seeing then that we are compassed about by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us run with patience the race set before us. You know, it's, it's, we, all, these, all of these people in heaven that have gone before us, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, uh, David, Samuel, um, even the apostles, they're all in heaven. Do we somehow think they can't see us? They're not watching us? They're not witnessing how we're performing? I believe they're there cheering for us, and I believe that that um, God is looking for men and women who who will forsake everything to serve Him, and that will not that will that will believe Him to do what He did in the Old Testament. He's still the same God. We're still the same people. We're still men of flesh. We're still flawed. We're still imperfect. But I believe there are Gideons. There are still Gideons and Baraks and and others in in this life right now in 2021. Who are being called to, to who are being called to stand in faith and believe God against imper- impossible circumstances to do great exploits for His kingdom, I, and I believe those people exist today. And, I, and it's you know I, I can't say with certainty who the, who all of them are. I think I'm seeing a lot of them here at this event. You know, a lot of crazy people here that they're that willing to put everything on the line to save a country, and uh, I think that's that that's what God's looking for. Um, that's what I think. Bill, does does this resolution come about peacefully? I don't know. I, I tend to think not. I think there's going to be a, co- a component of it at some point that, that involves uh, kinetic action, you know. I don't know for certain. Um, and I don't even know how we get to that. How we get to that? Because the the armies that armies that we are uh, that are arrayed against us in this country are, and around the world really are are vast and, and of great number. You know, we don't. I mean, we as the American people, we can't. We're not talking about muskets and uh, bayonets, bayonets and uh, lead balls. You know, but you know. 
it's still, I mean, it, it, it's not impossible. We don't, it, it does, we don't have to be um, armed at the same level. It may, it, you know, I would tend to think a lot of it is going to happen just because, you know, God intervenes and we, we believe him and he intervenes. I, I believe it can happen. I honestly believe it can happen. Whether we are at that point right now where it's, where we have where we have the people and the people of faith that can see see this thing through to happen, I don't know. But we're at a point where I think we need God's intervention against some of the things that are happening. If you look at all the yelling in the world, it's not going to get it done. If you look at the history of your your time on on on, on Earth and in this flesh. Uh, Have you seen a recent drastic fall of the country? Have you? How long have you seen the country being at stake or being uh, prone to this I have, decline? I have seen it. I would say I have been acutely become more acutely aware, beginning let's say with the uh, with the you know, with the years of the Nixon administration back in that, you know, where I saw, you know, he, he was... Foster uh, the gold standard. Yeah, he, well, uh, and many things, but he was destroyed. You know, I, th- I think that, you know, what Nixon did was benign compared to the stuff that, that's happening today. It doesn't even, it's not even in the same plane. Yeah, this is a... Uh, playing field, you know. But, I mean, things have, have degraded over time. It's been going on for decades. I've this is it. a stealth. This is a stealth attack. This it is, is a very, hidden attack. It is, yeah. It's becoming more transparent, but it is a stealth attack. Yeah, and it's not just coming from. I believe it's not just coming from the people in our own government. It's something that's being orchestrated again by some sort of global cabal. I don't know what that cabal is, but. Um, I have. I, I just have discerned that there's incredible evil being being uh, undertaken against our country. It's just incredibly evil, and um, to a great degree, we've brought it on ourselves. Complacency, comfort. complacency, abortion by killing 77 million unborn. You know, by drenching the land in innocent blood. We've we've invited the the judgment of God on our nation, and so in some ways, you can see. You can see the hand of God and the evil that's happening to us. We can't. It's hard to. Um, it's hard to uh, bitch about being uh, about a vaccine when babies are being torn asunder and they're being slaughtered in their mother's wombs at the tune to the tune of seventy-seven million. Who's really suffering? You know, it's there's a thing. This thing called innocent blood that God says the land cannot be cleansed of innocent blood that is shed therein. And there, there has to be, there will be a reckoning. I don't know, maybe this is the reckoning we're going through, but the key to that's going to be repentance as a nation. We have to turn from that crime. It's a crime against nature. And we need to, we need as a nation, we need to repent. And I don't expect the ungodly to repent. I just expect Christians to take a stand against it. They have to take a stand against it and start opening their mouths and fighting it. Um, so... Um. Website, book, information. Uh, website listeners. is blackrobregiment.us. If they want to sign up for our mailing list or give, the, they can text black, the word black, to 53445. If uh, they, they can contact me at rev, rev at blackrobregiment.us. And uh, 
was our best to respond and get back to them. We need pastors. Pastors need to stand up. We need to form. We're, for, we're going to be having conferences for pastors around the country. We're doing one in New York, I believe, this summer, a major Black Robe Regiment conference. Where we're going to be standing up and challenging pastors, hey, get off your duff and start fighting for your country and start asserting yourself in local government. That's what we need. In fact, I'm, I'm, I believe as firmly as I believe anything that if pastors don't do that, everything else is becoming academic. You know, it has to happen. We need pastors to do what they did in 1776 and before. So, Bill, thank you very much. Thank you. I hope that was.